0: A registry of uncommon diseases helps researchers, but it also reminds patients that they aren't alone. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, April 27th, and this is In The Moment. The annual Great Plains Rare Diseases Summit is coming up in Sioux Falls. Ben Forad oversees the Rare Disease Registry at Sanford Research. He joins us to talk collaboration and connecting patients to clinical trials. And speaking of research, we connect with another Northern State University student who took home top honors for her research on preventing UTIs for women. Plus, Delta David Geyer talks the season finale for the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh, you're on The Moment, news is first. Black Hills residents who live downstream from the Pactola Reservoir want to restrict mining activity in an expanded area. A U.S. Forest Service review could exempt thousands of acres in the Black Hills from mining. SDPB's Lee Strubinger has more from a Wednesday night public hearing.
1: Carla Marshall wants leaders at the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management to know one thing.
0: As a Lakota woman, it is my responsibility to protect the Black Hills. The Chesapa is our, um, is where we hail from as,
1: as human beings. Marshall is Minicoju in Oglala Lakota and lives in Rapid City. She's one of dozens of tribal and non-tribal members who attended Wednesday night's Forest Service public hearing. The Forest Service is considering restricting mining activity on about 20,000 acres in and around the Pactola Reservoir. Marshall says she worries an increase in mining claim activity could lead to larger mining projects.
0: And for the Black Hills, we are totally under attack. The Black Hills is now totally under attack from mining interest.
1: There are about 800 active mining claims in the area. While some people support the 20,000-acre mining exemption, many say it should be bigger. Justin Harriman is with the Rapid Creek Watershed Action and Black Hills Paddlers. He says the Forest Service should expand the restricted acreage to protect the entire Rapid Creek Watershed. Ideally, to uh, meet the goals that they've laid out in their plan to protect the drinking water for Rapid City, Ellsworth Air Force Base, and and the surrounding communities, we really need to expand this withdrawal to encompass the entire um, Rapid Creek Watershed, which is about 198,000 acres. The current plan covers about 10% of the watershed. Harriman and others say the Forest Service should protect the headwaters in Tepectola as well. He says his goal is to permanently restrict all mining activity in the Rapid Creek watershed, which would take congressional action. Forest Service officials authorized an initial environmental assessment for F3 Gold's Jenny Gulch Gold Exploration Project. That's one of two of the company's Black Hills mining exploration projects. Early Forest Service findings showed proposed activity would present no significant impact on the area. However, after public opposition to the Jenny Gulch project and additional review, the Forest Service began what's called a mineral withdrawal process. If approved, that process halts any mining activity for up to 20 years. Jacqueline Buchanan is Deputy Regional Forester with the U.S. Forest Service in the Rocky Mountain region. She says the agency decided to take a second look at the project after hearing public comment on the ruling.
2: Uh, because of the concerns around the cultural resources, the concerns around the natural resources, we were already getting a lot of indications from you know, the city of Rapid and Ellsworth Air Force Base and the communities you know around that potential impact to Pactola Reservoir.
1: Buchanan says by following their review process, the Forest Service has stopped activity on the Jenny Gulch Gold Exploration Project.
2: If we really do our job in the process, there, it isn't a, oh, you're only going to come to this outcome. Sometimes it leads to very unexpected outcomes. And, and I think a lot of folks felt that um, out, of, out of that uh, Jenny Gulch initial um, review.
1: However, some people say the agency's new position to withdraw land from mining conflicts with the Biden administration's goal to source more critical minerals domestically. Larry Mann is with Mann Strategies. He's lobbied for mining companies and now works for F3 Gold. Mann says his comments are his own and emphasizes that the permitting process for mineral exploration is very complex.
3: The problem, I think, is what people don't know about exploration and that it is almost as much finding out where gold isn't as it is where it is.
1: Man questions whether the recent move by the Forest Service to withdraw land from mining activity is legal. He says F3 submitted its plan of operation in 2018. The company then paid for the environmental assessment and initially the Forest Service issued the finding of no significant impact.
3: And that's where we were. So then you go into another comment period, another objection period, and then a resolution period. And frankly, after 75 days... They're supposed to issue a final record of decision and publish it in the Federal Register. That's what the law says they need to do. They failed to do that.
1: For now, any mining activity is halted in the 20,000-acre area around Pactola Reservoir while the Forest Service completes its review process. The public has until June 20th to give comment on the proposal. Federal officials say their process to determine the future of the Jenny Gulch mining project in the Black Hills will take about two years. I'm SDPB's Lee Strupinger.
0: You can find this story online at sdpb.org news. You're listening to In The Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. Yesterday, Kennedy Davis joined the show to discuss her research into new ways to fight fungal infections. And today, we hear from her fellow Northern State University student, Grace Kramer, who joins me now. Grace presented her research at the same Seattle Biochemistry Conference as Kennedy. And Grace took home top honors and a bit of prize money, too, for her honors research. That research explored a novel way that women can prevent urinary tract infections after sex. Grace joins me now from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio at Northern State University. Uh, Grace, welcome to In The Moment. Congratulations and thanks for being here today.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So uh, this is an area of research that I think is super interesting and really dives into an issue that because it deals with women's bodies and sexual activity, so often that's awkward to talk about. And those things that we feel awkward talking about uh, often don't get the research that they deserve. Uh, So what inspired you to dive into this uh, topic?
4: Well, there's just a huge need. The only preventative options women have that are effective are taking preventative antibiotics before or after sex. Um, And I got really interested in it because I've had this issue, all of my friends have had this issue. A lot of my friends have ended up in the hospital with kidney infections. Mm. Um, So it's just a very scary thing a lot of women go through. Um, I found there was a genetic component to getting UTIs, which is why around 26% of women get them more than three times per year.
0: Interesting. So give us kind of that layman's cliff notes version of the research you did and what you found.
4: So I wanted to research, like I said, a novel way. So I kind of was, you know, picking my own brain, thinking about how can we prevent this without taking a pill or a supplement which are proven to be totally ineffective. Mm. And so I kind of got along the lines of, well, how do condoms work? Condoms work by preventing by creating a physical barrier so that there's no pathogens being sw- spread during sexual intercourse. Um, but that does not protect the urethra, which is where the bacteria enters into the bladder and then eventually can spread to the kidneys. Um, so what I basically did is I made a patch with, that is a physical barrier to the urethra so you would apply it before sex, um, it would stay on during sex and then you can take it off after and there would be no bacteria kind of being pushed up into the
0: urinary tract. Interesting. So um, is would this be preventative for, I guess, are there different kinds of bacteria that we see more often or less often? How, how applicable does it look like this solution could really be?
4: Um, it's looking really good. So the main bacteria that causes urinary tract infections is E. coli. This E. coli is a superbug. Um, Basically, it has evolved to become intracellular, so it can get inside of our host cells, and that's how it evades antibiotics. Hmm. Um, It's become resistant to all beta-lactams, Bactrim, pretty much our gold standard antibiotics. So by having just this simple physical barrier that stops the bacteria from being able to penetrate it, um, there's pretty much full protection from them.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what challenges you might have run into in doing this research or if there's anything that surprised you because well, as soon as I read this I thought oh that makes sense a barrier um, mm-hmm. but what 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 are the barriers to making this um, more more applicable broadly speaking?
4: Yeah um, well like you mentioned, it's an uncomfortable talk um, uncomfortable thing to talk about a lot of women are embarrassed they think, you know, there's a lot of stigma surrounding this particular health issue that is so very common to almost all women. So I think um, just, you know, getting in front of rooms full of men and they're kind of like really uncomfortable that a woman like me is just so confidently talking about something like this. And that's Mm. kind of the one barrier I've gotten. Um, And also a lot of people don't understand their own anatomy. A lot of women don't know where their urethra is. They don't know that they have three holes. Mm. Um, That was
0: a really surprising barrier to me. Interesting. So um, say a bit more about that, please, about your experience at this conference. You obviously made a big impression. You brought home top honors. This is an international conference. Um, You're up against students from much larger schools and putting NSU on the map, which hooray for us that we have a bright mind representing (laughs) us. Um, But what was that experience like for you?
4: So My poster was a little bit different from everyone else's. Everyone had um, graphs with all their fancy data, and I just had pictures from my slides that I took from the microscope. Mm -hmm. So I think the pictures really drew people in, and they really enjoyed how um, accessible my research was. I kind of put it in a way that was easy for people to understand. Um, And I also had a picture of female anatomy on there, like little cartoon, and Mm -hmm. that really drew people in because they're like, wait a minute, what is this? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was, (laughs) yeah. A lot of people. But yeah, a lot of people came and talked to me and they're like, again, commending me for talking about this issue that kind of makes almost everyone uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Um, and my passion for solving or providing preventative options for this. So it was was awesome to talk to all the smart people around the country and all the judges were super kind and they had really helpful feedback.
0: And that's such a good point that you bring up as well that I want to highlight for this research is this is preventative rather than you already have the infection and you have to then deal with antibiotics. Maybe it's resistant to antibiotics. Where would you like to see this research go next? Um, So I just got
4: back from the South Dakota Giant Vision Competition um, where my research got second place. So I've already been working on the business aspect with the business professors here at Northern. Um, I'm hopefully going to get some more research and development funding. And I'm working with South Dakota Biotech to do customer discovery and get more funding um, just to see if this product is
0: viable and if I can keep this going. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Grace, if based on what you said earlier about being in often a room full of men talking about female anatomy, so much of us aren't even that familiar enough about the differences in anatomy, what advice would you give to up and coming women researchers that might wanna follow in your footsteps?
4: Um, I'd say be bold. Never be embarrassed to show what you're passionate about. Um, That was kind of what I was nervous about in the beginning, but, you know, you can choose whether or not you get embarrassed, but if you know your
0: idea can potentially help millions
4: of women, um, don't let anything stop you.
0: Our guest has been Grace Kramer, an NSU student who brought home top honors from the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology International Conference in Seattle for her research on preventing UTIs for women after sex. Great. Congratulations again. Really interesting research, and I look forward to following it in the future. Thank you for your time today.
4: Yes, thank you so much. Um, have a great day.
0: You too. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. Getting any sort of medical diagnosis can be scary, but getting a diagnosis that only a few hundred other people share comes with its own unique challenges. Ben Forrett is the director of the Rare Disease Registry at Sanford Health. That registry uses connection to fight the isolation that comes with a rare disease diagnosis. And he joins me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls to discuss rare diseases, the registry, and the Rare Disease Summit happening next month in Sioux Falls. Ben Ford, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So let's start with basic definitions. I think rare... Mm I, I think rare, I don't have a specific <laughs> yes. number attached to that in my brain, but I think maybe one other person in the world. But right. medically speaking, how do we define a rare disease?
5: Yeah, a rare disease in the United States is defined by the Orphan Drug Act, which is a, a, passed by Congress. And so we have it defined as anything that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. at any point in time. Uh, there are about 11,000 diseases that fit that, um, fit that criteria Some you've heard of, like maybe cystic fibrosis or ALS, um, Mm. things like that. And some of them are incredibly rare, where they do only affect maybe five people in the entire world.
0: Wow. Um, Sanford developed this resource, the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford. It's, um, as I've read about it, as much a resource for patients as for researchers in a lot of ways. (laughs) Tell us more about what this is and and how it works.
5: Sure. Well, I think the best way to describe it is to take it one step back and just say that uh, the thing that's difficult about rare conditions is that when you go to your physician and you get an ultimate diagnosis, uh, and the time that it takes to get that diagnosis is Mm -hmm. far longer than it takes most, you know, for most diseases, because there's so little known. So in the rare disease space, you're living with an obvious medical condition, but no one really knows how to put their finger on it. And so scientists exist in one bubble and patients exist in another bubble. And the, the trouble that we all have is trying to bring those two bubbles together and having them match. And the goal of the of the Cords registry is what we, we Cords is what we call it for short. Yeah. The the goal of that is to basically allow patients to tell their story uh, by answering questions. Uh, and so we have a standard questionnaire that they fill out, and then we'll work with patient advocacy organizations. So you know the ALS Foundation is a, is an example of an organization that advocates for patients with ALS and their families. A lot of rare conditions have those types of patient advocacy organizations that are associated with them. We've worked with uh, over 100 of them to create disease-specific questionnaires. So those patients are asked answering questions about their lives, and they're telling their story about, this is what life with this disease is like. And then researchers can get those answers to those questions to help guide the things that they're doing. Uh, I always say it, and it's 100% true, when you are a rare disease patient, you yourself are the expert. Uh, and so it's not the people with the clipboard and a white coat. It's the it's you living the experience because you intimately know what's going on and uh, we're all trying to catch up.
0: Wow. Um, this year's summit there is there's a theme for the summit, um, examples of uh, rare, uh, pediatric neurological diseases, I believe is the focus yeah. of this year's yes. summit. Um, can you share, or is there maybe an example that comes to mind or kind of this specific area, especially, I'm thinking with pediatrics, when you have an especially young child mm-hmm. who is the person experiencing the symptoms, maybe isn't even developed enough to Clearly communicate as much as any of us can. Clearly communicate right. weird things that are happening to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, share a bit, if you would, about about this specific field.
5: Yes. Uh, so our theme this year is is rare neurodevelop- neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, it's a subset of a lot of different diseases, and it can present in a lot of different ways. Uh, the The only thing that they have in common is basically, in, for some reason, in some way, while the the baby was in the womb, they did not uh, completely develop the brain in the way that, uh, that a healthy brain would develop. And there's genetic reasons for that, or it could be environmental reasons for that. And so we're, we're going to be talking about a range of those disorders. Saddest thing about the whole theme of rare disease is that about two thirds of rare disease patients are pediatric. And it's, um, because 80% of them aren't genetic. And so, um, the sad stat is that most of them don't live to adulthood, and that's what keeps these diseases rare. Uh, they don't have long enough to live to find a partner and to have children and and pass the mutations along. And so some in a lot of cases, the disease ends with them. And curing these kinds of things is even more, uh, has even more fire behind it because you're dealing with Small patients who can't express themselves, like you said, we're working with incredibly um, devoted parents who are fighting, you know, like like the, like they're at the gates of hell to yeah. to make sure that their kids are have the treatment that they would need to get better, and um, there's very 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 little time, and so um, I think that the the impetus here and the the big goal that we have for symposiums like this is to invite. Patients uh, to come and tell their story on the first afternoon. It's a Thursday afternoon, May 11th. Um, and we'll be having discussions about how patients can advocate for themselves in, in medicine and in um, grant funding and those kinds of things, how they can come together as a group and create an organization, a nonprofit, and raise money and, and fund things like research or awareness and that kind of thing. And then on the second day, we have a full scientific symposium with researchers renowned from around the world that will be there. Um, And they'll be giving talks. Um, This will be very science heavy. But if anyone in the community has ever had an interest in understanding how scientists talk to each other, uh, or understanding how uh, the things that happen in a doctor's visit in a clinic room, you know, how, how um, you know, they know in, in diabetes, how do they know to test A1C. It's because of research. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be in the trenches, so to speak, that Friday event is really a great opportunity to check that out. So you can attend both virtually or in person at the Sanford Center.
0: Right. Uh, I wonder if you can say just a little bit more about patient advocacy because that is so key in reaching that diagnosis. And before you get that diagnosis, you might not know to connect with an ALS organization or anything else like this. Say a bit more about taking that into your hands and what. What that process might look like, and for for folks looking Absolutely. for answers,
5: yes. The, so for rare disease patients, the statistics are are discouraging, but uh, but there is hope. Uh, it takes on average seven years to reach your ultimate diagnosis, and uh, they are d- misdiagnosed up to twelve times uh, per patient. And so you're going through what is commonly described as this diagnostic odyssey, mm-hmm. where the where we're ruling things out more than we're identifying things, and um, I think that the, the big um, difficult thing that, that uh, families have is, is trying to find the people like them that understand what they're going through. And so that's where patient advocacy steps in. Uh, pe- people who have gotten all the way to the end and have that diagnosis can reach out to other families who have children that look like theirs or um, as adults have, have disorders that are very similar. And the way that that looks in the 21st century is social media. So we're on their Facebook pages. We're on, uh, there's Twitter feeds. There's all sorts of different avenues for people to connect. And so with the registry, when we're developing these disease-specific questionnaires, it's not uncommon for us at all to have one person reach out to us and say hi, I'm a member of a Facebook group, and there are 11 of us um, from around the world. Uh, there's three in the U.S., two in Berlin, Germany, and uh, you know the rest are in like New Zealand and China. And the only thing that we have in common is that our kids have these neurological disorders that can't be defined, uh, but they all have the same mutation in this one gene. And so, what one of the things that we'll do is let's get some data, start ask, start asking questions, start getting answers from your lives, and then let's also start to talk about maybe how you can get yourself set up as a nonprofit five hundred one c three organization. And you know, even though there's a small number of you, that allows you a lot of degrees of freedom to open the doors to receiving donations, um, pushing forward with research, finding researchers uh, that are looking into your sort of thing, and and uh, Moving on from there. So patient advocacy can absolutely drive research.
0: Wow. And to that end with research, yeah. I'm imagining if there are eleven people worldwide with this specific thing. Yeah. And a researcher looking for someone to do a trial. Yep. Connecting those dots. That's I can I I can't editorialize, but I'm gonna a little bit. To me, that is so <laughs> exciting to have that house yeah. here in South Dakota, this incredible yeah. asset for mm-hmm. solving these very difficult medical issues. Yes. Are there is there an anecdote you might be able to share about connecting someone with a trial that led to something?
5: Well, I I think that I can share I guess I'll say it this way. Mm-hmm. One of the things we do is work with pharmaceutical companies all the time, and they'll have a trial, and there's inclusion criteria for that trial, and we can query our database of patients, and then we can share the information for that trial with those patients. So that is something that we do all day, every day. Um, but there is there are often cases where we'll... Um, encounter a patient who has had no one. They have not known anyone who has their specific illness, and we're able to introduce them to a group of people who understand and who get it. And when you're a parent of a child, um, parenting is hard enough. When When your child has a rare condition, it's very isolating and a very lonely sort of experience. And to be able to see parents get together and have this entire aspect of their lives that they usually have to explain in grave detail to any new people they meet just be able to be parents and just have a lot of that go unspoken because they all get it is a really beautiful gift that's a thing that uh that everyone deserves and they're able to just let their kids be kids for a while and their parents they're just parents for a while and i think that that's something that that those families miss out on a lot um and the same goes for having any sort of a rare condition in rural America. Um, if you're in a space like South Dakota, like we are, uh, it's hard to know that there are people out there going through the same thing you are and then to find them. hmm
0: what drives you in this kind of work?
5: <laughs> yeah, well, I think that uh, what drives me is the people that I know myself who have rare conditions. And so uh, my I have rare conditions that run in my family. Uh, my best friend passed away from a rare liver cancer. Uh, there's there's all these different things, but, but that really touches on the dirty secret in rare conditions, which is it is rare to have any one of those 11,000 diseases. But one in 10 people, 10% of all people have a rare disease. And so the, the term rare is a misnomer and it gives it some sort of a, a deprioritization when we talk about public health. Hmm. We're talking about 10% of the population when we're talking about rare disease. Uh, we're not talking about one in five. We're talking about 30 million Americans. And if anybody out there listening were to think for just 10 minutes about everyone that they know in their life, I bet you will be able to at least find one person in your circle who is living with a rare condition.
0: Uh What else would you like to tease for folks about this upcoming summit?
5: Sure. <laughs> well, Thursday the 11th, uh, starting from 330, going until 7, it's gonna be a very educational community based event at the Sanford Center. Uh, here in Sioux Falls, we're going to have uh, heavy hors d'oeuvres, there'll be drinks, um, uh, a kind of a, a social mixer. It's going to be kicked off by a physician who sees rare disease patients and we'll be talking more in lay terms about kind of what what that's like. And then again, um, Friday, all day is a scientific symposium and, and it's a great way for you to come. Uh, even if you don't have a science background, just to kind of come and experience what that is like. I think really one of the key things here is demystifying this whole process for for everyone to understand that science isn't behind a curtain. Um we just are introverted. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yep, it's it's getting that <laughs> bridging that gap between right. yes. between the lab and the rest of the world. Um our guest again has uh been Ben Forid. He is the uh, sorry, It's <laughs> the director of the Rare Disease Registry at Sanford Health. And again, that symposium is coming up May 11th and 12th in Sioux Falls. Registration now open for that Rare Disease Summit. And we'll have more information up on our website. That's sdpb.org slash news. Ben Ford, thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you for your work and for uh, peeling back that curtain between yes. <laughs> the scientists and the rest of us.
5: <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. Randy Seiler died 10 days ago. He leaves behind an undeniable legacy in South Dakota politics. And Kevin Wooster joins me from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. He's here to remember the man who acted with decorum in everything he did. Kevin Wooster, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here today.
3: Hey, it's good to be back, Um, Somewhere up in the great beyond, Randy Seiler is saying Wooster was late again. <laughs> so.
0: That's right. So uh, let's talk about the pangs of regret of a missed funeral.
3: Yeah. You know, life gets busy. And even for old semi-retired guys, life can get busy. And it just happened on the day of the memorial service for Randy. I had a bunch of stuff going on. You know, it was over in Fort Pier. And I uh, kind of plan on going to the funeral mass the next day for him and, and uh, on Tuesday morning. But uh, 71 years old, tired, not feeling great at the end of the day, and uh, 5 o'clock in the morning came too early for me. So I slept into her my regular time and then woke up and immediately felt guilty, uh. terrible, because I didn't get there. And that's kind of what I write about, about, you know, sometimes you, you just say, oh, I'm just too busy to do a certain thing or there are too many things going on. And uh, and then you say, why did I think those things were more important than this and why didn't I rearrange things? And In this case also, why didn't I just get up and suck it up and go have a long day of driving and be there? Hmm.
0: And it's tricky because uh, as you write in your blog, it, uh, you knew Randy Seiler. You were co- collegial, friendly with each other. Um, didn't necessarily hang out a ton, not necessarily very tight friends, but he was someone you admired for a lot of reasons.
3: I did. And some of that was touched on by Democrats and Republicans. You know, a number of Republicans sent out statements when Randy died and, uh, called him a great, uh, U.S. attorney and a great guy and a great father and neighbor. And, and, uh, the, I knew all that and I wrote about that and over the years, you know, I covered him and and interviewed him as a Democratic uh, chair and as U.S. attorney and as a chief assistant U.S. attorney. And our relationship was not across the fence, great uh, close friends, but it was one of, uh, I always call it a friendly acquaintance and mutual respect and uh, and I think like so many people that knew him, he was so energetic and so full of life that I just thought when I read that he had a heart attack while running that he was airlifted to Sioux Falls that he would come out of it and I think it was sort of a shock that he didn't.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned a few times in this uh, blog post that uh, one of the many things you admired about Randy Seiler was just his decency and uh Kind of a shame that decency is so rare in politics these days that it's something to point out <laughs> as, as, as something unique to someone's political career.
3: Isn't that sad mm. when, when you think about that? And that came out in the mor- at the memorial that I missed by Johnny Brocklesby uh, from the Reptile Gardens fame, who's, who's worked with, with Randy on the Badlands National Park Conservancy. And knew him well, and uh, you know he spoke and encouraged the the people there to try and live their life more like Randy did, in politics and beyond. But uh, but uh, and I think I get into the to the column about that a little bit with uh, with what my daughter who worked for Randy mm-hmm. and benefited so much from her his mentorship and his support. I think she called him a ch- always a champion for her, and uh, you know beyond a friendship that makes a connection with a grateful father that's kind of special. Mm-hmm. But uh, but talked about uh, the decency in him that he brought to anything he did, which included politics. And as I say, in their man, could we use more decency in politics?
0: Right. And it's so, so interesting thinking about Randy Seiler and his role with the South Dakota Democratic Party at a time when it's all too easy to almost poo poo the influence of Democrats in South Dakota. It feels like an uphill battle uh, almost is an understatement when it comes to the supermajority in the state house and, and in all other uh, aspects of state politics. Um, you do talk about Randy Seiler running for. Uh, Attorney General in South Dakota in 2018 ended up losing to um, uh, Jason Roundsburg, and of course we all know what happened with that story. And uh, you didn't hear any any smugness from Randy Siler uh, as as that unfolded.
3: I certainly didn't, and he would have had reason to say "I told you so," uh, even though that was had nothing to do with Roundsburg's abilities, which or experience which was virtually none as a prosecutor and um, you know, Randy Seiler was perhaps the most experienced prosecutor to ever run for the uh, South Dakota Attorney General's office in the first time uh, candidacy. And that wasn't his way. I think he knew the tragedy, he knew the pain that it had caused when when, uh, Roundsburg hit and killed Joe Beavers who happened to be as I point out in the blog column, uh, the cousin of the Nick Nemec, a a mutual friend of Randy's and of mine that uh, hosts a hunt that Randy attended in in 2018 Mm -hmm. with us. And the sad irony of that accident taking place a few miles east of where the hunt takes place and the loss of of Nick's cousin, um, you know, it's a small state and tragedy hits home usually to many people, yeah. and it, it did there, and certainly not something that Randy Seiler was going to feel smug about.
0: Mm-hmm. It is a small state, there's there's interwoven connections in, in, in most situations, like you say, um, but the connect, some of the connections I'm making as I, with reading your blog, is uh, these ideas of both decency and legacy, um, both in state politics and just in life. I was so touched by your thoughts about how Randy Seiler impacted your daughter's career and, and this feeling of, of the grateful father for a mentor and thinking about where examples in my own life of mentors I've had far from home and how grateful my parents have been to those people and what a legacy means when a person is gone. Um, what, what does this bring up for you as you imagine legacy and in all its many meanings for us?
3: Well, you know, it it does mean so much as a parent to mean so much that you have somebody out there looking after your child as they head out into the world as adults. And you have to set them free and you can advise and you can hope. But they're pretty much setting their own uh, path. And to have somebody help that to make them, you know, feel secure and feel comfortable and feel uh, appreciated, that's that's, uh, hard to put a price on. And you know the the thing that Megan talked to me about when she called me because she was at the memorial, my daughter Megan, and, and mentioned some things that they said. And one of the things that she mentioned was what Randy or what Marty Jackley had said about how when he was going to make a comment or a statement politically that, you know, maybe was going to come off as hyper partisan or very strongly partisan, he would think of his friend Randy Siler. and that would usually mitigate the tone it would soften the tone and uh, I called him up and asked him about that and we had a conversation about it and he said exactly that he would think of his friend and the way his friend Randy handled things and the way he presented himself and the way he presented his rhetoric and it usually improved what Marty would say and I and I thought that's, uh, that's pretty high praise uh, that uh, you would have that kind of effect on on someone and on many people, I assume.
0: Mm-hmm. As as things feel ever more, uh, what's the word I want to use? Divided is the usual one that we turn to. Um, folks like Randy Seiler and what he inspired in folks across the aisle throughout South Dakota is something uh, to, to strive towards. And that's something I, I find whenever I read your reflections on the, on the Mount Blogmore invitational pheasant hunts and chili feeds. Um, just something, it just seems like a, t- almost too idyllic for me in my current <laughs> cynicism of life. Um, but there are, there are yet folks uh, left who believe in things like decency and shaking a hand across the aisle and learning from each other.
3: Yeah, and that's what the Mount Blogmore Hunt is all about. You know. And, and we started that in 2007 because people on our blog and the Reptile Journal website were fighting and they were calling each other names and they were threatening to punch each other and it was horrible. So Nick Nemec and I said, let's get them all together in a field with shotguns and see how that goes. <laughs> and, uh, and we did, and my boss would, and I was a little concerned about it and I said, it'll be fine, and it was. People got out there, found out how much they have in common and that's what we've been doing ever since. And we, in 2018, uh, we had a great time with, with Randy. That was his first time there, I believe. And then t- 2019, Nick had a, a death in the family and we canceled and then 2020 came along with COVID. We didn't hold it. 2021, we really didn't hold it then either. And then uh, last year, as I remember, Randy couldn't make it, but he would have been back for sure. And, you know, we were planning that to see him again. And it's a sad thing that he won't be there, but we'll certainly stop and remember him this fall when we gather at a hunt that's really meant to be kind of what he was all about. Is People, sure, we have differences, we have to express ourselves, we have to stand for what we believe in, but we don't have to be mean and nasty.
0: You can read all of Kevin's work at sdpb.org Wooster, including this most recent reflection on Randy Seiler. Kevin Wooster, thanks as always. It's a treat to chat with you, and thank you for reflecting on decency and legacy with us today.
3: Thank you, Jackie.
0: The South Dakota Symphony Orchestra is taking its final bow this weekend, that is, until next year. And what a season finale it will be. The symphony is concluding its season with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and a Bridging Cultures event. Maestro Delta David Geyer joins me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Plus, we're joined by featured composer Rina Rina S. Esmea. I'm so sorry for that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about music and the season's connections. Delta David Geyer, welcome. Thank you for being thank you. here. Thanks. And Rina, thank you as well. Thank you. Maestro, let's start reflecting on a, on a season. It's the centennial season. Mm. We are seeing so much well-deserved attention to South Dakota's gem of a symphony orchestra around the country. Everyone else is catching on to what we know
6: um (laughs) it's it's true yeah actually another huge article
0: out today wonderful and uh reflect for me had you ever envisioned something like this coming for this for the south dakota symphony orchestra
6: no it's what we've been hoping for what we've been planning for what we've been working towards so so yeah as as our assistant conductor said this morning about darn time (laughs) there we we are here
0: (laughs) right (laughs) Um, let tell me about this uh, Bridging Cultures event coming up this weekend as the season finale.
6: Right. So actually, it began last night with a concert at Avera. Um, and the whole idea behind Bridging Cultures is that we can learn to understand one another through the sharing of something we love, which is music. So we have it's a very composer centric program. We have composers from all, to, all over the world that participate in our Bridging Cultures program. Um, and they, they speak with their own accent of their own countries and uh, they're expressing their their identities through through the music that they compose. Um, we also are very careful to choose communities within our community with which to partner. Like we don't, it's no, there's no ticking boxes as part of our bridging cultures program. It's all very intentional about you know which which countries are represented, uh, which composers we invite, and that sort of thing. So uh, Saturday's concert will be um, the idea is taking Beethoven's ni- Beethoven Ninth Symphony's uh, overarching theme, which is the universal brotherhood of man. It's contained in the text in the last movement, and and having having it as an umbrella over the entire program. So we have two women composers, uh, one from Iran and one uh, well, American, but South of South Asian descent. Um, being featured on the first half, one of which is Rena's piece, My Sister's Voice. So, two sisters uh, singing on stage, Universal Brotherhood of Man, you get the picture.
0: Right. Yeah, Reno, what would you like to share about uh, My Sister's Voice, your piece that's featured in this performance?
2: Oh, I'm so happy that this performance is happening. It was originally scheduled for April 2020, uh, so you can imagine how that went. Um, <laughs> it took us about three years to finally uh, get get to this point, so I'm so happy that we're doing the piece finally. So it's interesting because it's um, sisters across cultures. So one, uh, one of the soloists is the same soprano that you'll hear singing in Beethoven 9, and then the other singer is an Indian Hindustani classical singer named Siley Oak. Uh, the soprano is Yuna Lee. And, um, and it's so this amazing, uh, it's it's a way to kind of um, show all the complexity in sisterhood, right? It's not all just love and care. Sometimes it's competitiveness. Sometimes it's missing one another. Sometimes it's not feeling great about one another. Uh, but the idea is to show that sisterhood is not just about biological sisterhood. There's so many ways that we can be sisters with one another.
0: Hmm. Share Share a bit more about this style of music th- yeah. that... That you're working with here? So
2: I actually work between the world of Western classical and Indian classical music. So of course on the Western side all of you know you have a wonderful uh, symphony right here in your hometown what that is, but in Indian classical music there's um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on melody and on rhythm and so um, you have a tradition that is mostly an improvised tradition and so the melody can be so mellifluous and so just um, uh, uh, complex in a really beautiful way and so you'll see in this piece that um, the two voices are juxtaposed with one another so you can really hear the differences and the complements of both the musical cultures.
0: Wonderful. Um, Delta David Guyer, these, uh, these Bridging Cultures events um, are are such a beautiful way to bring people in and make those connections uh, across the the universal language of music. It doesn't matter what country of origin the music is from. You feel that in that shared human spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, Just say more for us about continuing this program, finally seeing it come to fruition three years later.
6: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's, I mean, Bridging Cultures actually began with our Lakota music project. Mm -hmm. That was the template. Uh, And we, we built it very carefully starting... Golly, almost 20 years ago, we began building, building that and we've been touring it almost 15 years now uh, with Lakota and Dakota musicians side by side with our symphony musicians. And then we, we took the template that we carefully created with, with our Native American partners and applied it to other communities within our community. Um, so, so we've uh, now partnered several times with the Chinese Association, Hispanic Business Leaders Network. Uh, south asian community um yeah so it's there. there's um it's an ongoing thing we have at, at least one bridging cultures program every season
0: right. and rena as far as that cross this idea of cross-cultural sisterhood um how have you seen in your own musical career uh music serve as that connecting peace between people
2: yeah, I love to write pieces that actually create um, some kind of environment where people can come together across cultures. So I've worked in so many situations, even with uh, My Sister's Voice, this piece that we're doing on Saturday. Um, I've, we Every every time that Sailee Oak, who is the Hindustani singer you'll hear singing the piece, um, every time she goes to a different city, she sings this work with a different soprano, and she gets to actually meet her musical counterpart. And so since 2018, since this work has was written premiered, and she's met so many singers um, across the country and gotten to actually have these experiences and I mean I think it just really makes our lives all richer to be aware of what exists in parallel to us and what are these parallel lives that we can intersect with um, and you know there, there's just so much beauty there
0: hmm. Delta David Guyer this is the season finale for a big season for South Dakota Symphony Orchestra too soon to ask about next season? Mm-hmm. Question mark?
6: Oh, no. I mean, it's already launched. Um, tickets are already on sale for next season. So we got a beautiful lineup, um, wonderful music, wonderful soloists. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something to look forward to. But we got a lot of a little work to do between now, <laughs> now and then. So, Just yeah. one whole performance. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and I do want to note the tickets for the symphony's Beethoven Ninth performance this Saturday already sold out congratulations, but you can get tickets for the open rehearsal. What uh, can folks expect from that experience of watching a rehearsal?
6: Well, um, well, first of all, if, if you want to come on Saturday night, you should just check because people turn their tickets back and they'll do that. So just, just, just check with the box office. Um, One o'clock on Saturday afternoon is our dress rehearsal, $10 a ticket only uh, open seating in the hall and uh, it's a working rehearsal, so it's uh, it's a bit of a peek to the into the inner workings of the orchestra. I'll, they've got me mic'd so the audience can hear everything I'm saying to the orchestra, and and um, you know people who've come to these rehearsals before have said they really enjoyed hearing how things change when we rehearse them. And mm. I'll say something to the orchestra, and they respond, and you know it's um, it's kind of a fun process if you're unfamiliar with it.
0: Right. Our guests have been maestro Delta David Geyer and uh, featured composer Rena Esmea. Thank you. Congratulations on a beautiful season and thank you for your joining us today. Thank, thank you so much. Again, the symphony's Beethoven ninth performance this Saturday. That does it for our show today. We want to thank you for joining us. Join us again tomorrow on In the Moment to learn more about potential for remote robotic dental surgery. That's from researchers at South Dakota Mines. All that and more on In the Moment tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Jackie Hendry, and today for Lori Walsh, thank you for listening.